All right, why don't you open up to Ephesians 4, and we're going to be in verses 11 through 14. I know, covering lots of ground, 11 through 14. Have you guys ever used the wrong tool for a job? You ever used the screwdriver as a hammer? Tried to cut a steak with a tomato knife? Or a tomato with a steak knife? Have you ever gotten a bundle from Ikea? And you realize partway through that you don't have the tools to finish the job, but you try anyway with what they've given you? I've never tried any of these things. Actually, I have. And what usually happens when we use the wrong tool for the wrong job? Well, we end up getting hurt, probably, or we hurt the thing we're working on. I learned very early on when I first started doing any kind of construction that you have to use the right tool for the right job, or it's likely that something might break. And this is why Seth probably will not allow me to work on our church building. (laughs) Since chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul has been discussing the work of the Spirit in building up the church. And he's come to a place in Ephesians 4 where he's discussing the gifts of the Spirit for the given task of building up the church. And two weeks ago, I titled the teaching Part 1 of the Truly Charismatic Church as we discuss these gifts. And we looked at the first two main points. You guys remember those with me? The first one here that we were going to be looking at when it came to the gifts of the Spirit here in Ephesians is that the source of the gifts is the ascended Christ. That was the first thing we looked at two weeks ago. And then the second thing we saw was that the content of the gifts is one another. The content of the gifts is one another. I can't even tell you how many people came up to me after the service and said, man, that was mind-blowing. I've never, I've never thought about it that way. Well, that's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. But I also think that it's imperative that we know that these spiritual tools are given to us for a reason, and we need to think about what they're for. Otherwise, we might cause brokenness when we try to use them, maybe even destruction. If we use one of the gifts or the tools for something that it wasn't intended for. And so today, I'm going to zoom in on the third main point I wanted to make in this mini-teaching series within Ephesians. And I want to look at this. And this is going to be kind of the overarching theme of today, and we'll get into some sub-points. The purpose of the gifts is service to the body toward unity. The purpose of the gifts is service to the body toward unity. And then next week, we'll finish with the fourth main point. But before we get too far, let me refresh your memory from two weeks ago. I know that two weeks passes, and I can't even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, so let me try and help us all remember I know that Tyler did a great job last week, but we got to go back two weeks. Paul moved from his prayer in chapter 3 that the church at Ephesus would know and experience the love of Christ that surpassed simple cognitive understanding. He wanted them to experience the love of Jesus. And if you remember, we talked about how that would happen would be through the tangible body of Christ, that they would experience the love through one another. And he finished with a doxology of praise that God is able to make that unity happen by his Holy Spirit. He's able to do far more abundantly above what we think or ask within the body of Christ. And from there, Paul urged the people to walk in a manner worthy of the Spirit's calling to unity in Christ. That was the beginning of chapter 4. Now remember that the surrounding situation in Ephesus and many of the other churches, such as Corinth, was not so much conflict coming from outside the church. Yeah, they had some enemies there, but the conflict was truly coming from inside the church. And so Paul was calling people to examine themselves to see if they were eager for the maintaining of the unity of the Spirit. That's right there in chapter 4, verse 3, in the bond of peace. Paul then moves from the call to unity into the section we covered two weeks ago from verses 7 through 10. 
And the quote in the center of that that says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men, that comes from Psalm 68 in the Old Testament. And the entire context of the psalm that Paul is trying to pull into his train of thought here is he's talking about God being at war against the kingdom of darkness. And at the center of the gospel is that our God has inaugurated his reign by his victorious work through Jesus Christ in conquering the kingdom of darkness. Jesus, who was eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he stepped into the enemy territory of this world. And this world, being the kingdom of darkness, being led by the prince of the power of the air, fought against him. And through Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, through his death, dying on our behalf, in our place, Jesus paid the price for our sins and defeated death and hell and sin. He removed the ability of Satan to claim us as his own. And then he led us captive out of that kingdom into his own kingdom, taking us captive. And then we, being the bounty of uh, that, dis- that, that victory, he gave us to one another. He inaugurated this new kingdom. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ took the bounty that he had plundered, you and I, and he gave us as gifts to his church, you and I. It's an amazingly beautiful train of thought when you connect it to the Old Testament. And in my opinion, this is the foundation for how we must read any of the texts that speak of the spiritual gifts. Our talents, our time, our treasure, our relationships are all gifts given to one another to the glory of God through each other. Now, there are multiple lists of gifts listed in Scripture. Romans 12, we looked at a couple weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 12 technically has two lists. 1 Peter 4 lists two gifts, speaking and service. And then we have this list here in Ephesians 4. Now, what I want to tell you guys, because many of you are probably familiar with those lists, is that those lists are not meant for restriction. They're meant for suggestion. Most biblical scholars believe that Paul was not sitting down under inspiration, writing down a list of the only kinds of gifts And I found so much destruction in the church when people go, which of these eight gifts is mine? I don't really fit into those. Which one am I? Dang it, I don't have a place in the church of Christ. Instead, what Paul is doing is he's giving list after list, and the lists all vary, as is Peter in his short list of two there. And they're saying, think about what your spiritual gifts are and use them for the body. You see, we must be careful not to go beyond what Scripture is saying and use any of these lists as the basis to create new theologies. It's amazing how many theologies are created around certain lists, tongues, healings. But have you ever seen a church pop up who's like, man, I can hardly wait for the spirit of administration today. Let's all pray for the spirit of administration, right? Let's do some some tabbing and some accounting, right? Some of you would love that, but others you're like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't we celebrate that gift of the spirit just like we would other ones? Paul's entire point to the church at Corinth was that we weren't supposed to be using the gifts to elevate people or elevate the gifts. Corinth was making a big deal out of certain gifts, and Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians to tell them to stop it. That's what's amazing, is the very scriptures that are used to back a lot of that theology are the very scriptures that Paul was using to say, don't do that. Elevating gifts over people actually undercuts the entire point of the gifts, which is to serve and love one another not lift ourselves and our gifts up as special. Here's what John Stott says, a wonderful theologian. He says, all spiritual gifts then are service gifts. This is their purpose. 
They are not given for selfish, but for unselfish use, namely for the service of other people. Each of the lists of the charismata or the gifts in the New Testament emphasize this. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It follows that their comparative importance is to be assessed by the degree to which they edify or build up the church. And this is why the teaching gifts are of paramount importance. For nothing builds up the church like the truth of God's word. And guys, this is why I believe that the specific list in Ephesians is interesting. I believe that this list is a list specifically speaking of teaching gifts. To understand why Paul limits his lists of gifts here, we must remind ourselves of the context. Paul just described the warfare that Christ is engaged in. And so Paul is going to now speak to how these specific gifts that he's going to list are used to engage in spiritual warfare so as to not fall to the schemes of the enemy. And this is what sets the stage for his thoughts in Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. So let's read those now. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The first thing that you're going to see today, and this is the main point, the first main point I want to give you, is this. You can write this down. Ministers of the word are given as gifts to the church. Ministers of the word are given as gifts to the church. Now, as you're writing that down, can I just pause for a moment and call out the giant elephant in the room? The primary minister of the word in this church, me, just put the point on the board that ministers of the word are given as a gift to the church. This is almost as bad as when you read the scripture in the book of Numbers where Moses says, now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. You read that and you don't think about it, then you realize, wait a minute, Moses was the author. Oh, that's really awkward, Moses, right? Well, yes, this is awkward, but I still want to teach faithfully through this text because this is speaking not just about me, not just about Tyler, not just about Patrick, not just about anybody who speaks from this pulpit. This is saying to the church globally, And within each local congregation, ministers of the word are given as gifts to the church. And we'll see why in a little bit. And at the same time, I want you to realize that if you're a person who says, man, I wish I had that gift, I want you guys to remember James 3.1. Now, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Guys, one of the reasons that I spend 20 hours on a teaching that I'm going to deliver for 45, or let's be honest, an hour, right? (laughs) Is because I know that I will be judged for every word I speak. And as the Lord matures me and grows me up and grows the teaching ministry of this church through Patrick and Tyler and anyone else who steps up here, we have to realize that we will be called to account for what we tell you. Now, knowing that there are many gifts that are spoken of throughout the epistles, I believe what groups these four roles, and you're counting five, but I'll, I'll show you why I think there are four, What groups these four roles together in Paul's mind is that they are all gifts of leadership in the area of teaching. First, you can see there right away in verse 11, he's got apostles. 
Now, these were original ambassadors sent out by Christ. To be an apostle, one needed a commission directly from Christ. They were to be a witness of the resurrection. They were provided special inspiration and supreme authority. Uh, This was based on the fact that they did active miracles that are recorded in Scripture. And they are the original founders of the church. Second, you see prophets. Now, these could either be the prophets of the Old Testament, the primary mouthpiece of God during that period of time, or simply preachers under the immediate influence of the Spirit, and thus different from pastors and teachers. Now, I tend to believe it's the former, that he's speaking of prophets from the Old Testament. What's interesting about these two classifications, bear with me here, is that I think that these are no longer in the church. These are no longer in existence in the church in the way Paul was speaking of them. Now, why? Look back to Ephesians 2 with me. Look at 2, 19 through 21. Paul, the same guy who wrote chapter 4, and remember, he's writing the letter at one time. He doesn't break it down like we do. He says in verse 19 of chapter 2, So then you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. If these two groups of people set the foundation, could it be, could it be that they ended with the first generation of the church? And then the evangelists and shepherds and teachers continued the work. Now, this is not a battlefield I'm going to die on. So if you are a person who goes, no, absolutely, I believe apostles are for today, you don't need to come debate with me because I'm not going to debate you. There's just no point in debating it. It's something that's a secondary issue. But I do think it's very interesting that Paul notes this in chapter 2. I believe that there still is prophecy in the church today, but I believe it's different from the Old Testament prophets. Okay? But enough on that. That's not our main point today. Next on the list, we have evangelists. Evangelists are those that bring the gospel. They speak the basic truth that all of Christianity is centered upon. That Jesus Christ, who is eternally with the Father and the Spirit, the triune God, came in the flesh to live a sinless life. He exemplified God's kingdom will in his time on this earth, doing battle against the kingdom of darkness. He died upon the cross as a sinless, innocent sacrifice in our place as the substitute for our sins. And then he rose again three days later, proving his victory over sin, death, and hell. And he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father until the time for him to rule and reign physically over his kingdom would come. And those of us that respond to that good news by putting our hope and trust in Christ, we do so by repenting of our sins and turning to follow him as Savior and Lord. And if we do that, we will be justified in his sight. All by his grace, nothing that we have earned. And so I believe that evangelists are those that are sent throughout the world to speak to those that do not know the gospel so that they might be drawn to Christ. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're a visitor and you're thinking, man, I don't understand half the words Hans is using, That's okay. Here's what you do need to understand. Jesus Christ is reaching his hand of gracious love out to you, and he's saying, do not refuse it any longer. He died in your place for every sin that you've committed, and he asks you to walk with him. Today is the day of your salvation. And so the word repent means to turn from what you used to believe and follow Jesus in his ways. Become a disciple of Jesus today. Let me be your evangelist today. Let me draw you to the gospel And if you are a person that wants to be drawn to the gospel and wants to know more of what that means as a disciple of Jesus, I'll be standing in the back after service and I would love to talk with you about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. So that's evangelists. 
Now, the last gift is, in my opinion, one role or person. And many people who look at the Greek believe this. There is no article in front of teachers. And so uh, most people believe that this is shepherd teachers. Okay? Shepherd teachers. The word shepherd in the Latin is where we get the title pastor. These are those who lead the people of God in their local contexts, feeding God's word to the sheep, protecting the sheep from wolves, refreshing the sheep with the water of the word, organizing the other under shepherds, right? Does anybody else not like being called a sheep? I think it's so bad, right? But then when I look at us, I go, oh my gosh, we are such sheep, right? And that's why people who lead the church are called pastors. Now, Paul focuses, tune back in with me. You're you're thinking about how bad the pun was, okay? Now, Paul focuses on the people with these gifts because they are those that lead the church in following Christ. Do you guys remember the Great Commission? Here it is, uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority is uh, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, and that means as you're going, as you're going throughout life, make disciples of all nations. That is not just for missionaries, that is for every person who follows Christ. As you're going, make disciples of all nations. And what do you do? You baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so this is done through the baptism in the church where we, through the triune formula of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, baptize people and bring them into the community of faith. And then we teach them to obey all that we have commanded. The church has gotten so focused over here on let's get people in the door and get them saved that they've forgotten about the obedience part. We don't want to make it an either or, we want to do both. And what is it that joins all of these gifts together, these roles together? It's the ministry of carrying on the teaching of the word of God. And that's why Paul is focusing here. And he's focusing because he just was talking about warfare. And the surrounding context at Ephesus is Timothy is under warfare. Go read First and Second Timothy. And he's saying, these are important gifts when you're in the middle of warfare. Why? Well, two big reasons. And these are the, last, these are the two points for the rest of the teaching. Number two, here's our next big thought, is that biblical teaching equips the saints. Ministers of the word are gifts to the church because biblical teaching equips the saints. Look at verses 12 and 13 there. These roles equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The first thing we see that is the job of those within the body of Christ that teach is to equip. This word means to grow the person so that they are sufficient to complete a work. What is that work? Well, there are a few things we see in these short words here. First, we see that people in the church are to be sufficiently equipped to serve. The word ministry there, where it says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, it is the word in the Greek, diakonios, which is service. And it comes from the same Greek stem from which we get the word diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon. Servant. The men and women of this church that serve as deacons are titled servants. If a person from the first century were to come into our church, they'd be like, hey, here are your servants. The reason we give them the title is not because they are the best. Sorry, guys. But because they serve as the least. That's why they have that title. 
It cracks me up when people are like, I want to be a deacon. What you're saying is, I want to be a slave of everyone in this church. That's literally what you're saying. The title of deacon is given as a signpost that says, watch these people closely to see what it is to lay down your lives to serve those within the body. Follow their lead. They are the lead servants. We are constantly on the lookout for other people who are servants that can be pointed to as examples. That is what we desire the leadership of this church to be. We want, as it grows, for our leaders to be those leading in service, selfless, sacrificial service. Well, then secondly, Paul says that this service leads to building one another up. Not just for the sake of the individual, but for the sake of the individual within the overall body of Christ. The word here, build up, is a special word in the Greek that refers specifically to construction of a dwelling place. Interesting, if you think back to chapter 2, that the church is being built up to be a dwelling place for the Spirit. It's speaking of construction and engineering of a building. Now, this should immediately call our minds back to Paul's train of thought in chapter 2 because Jews and Gentiles are doing that work of reconciling so that the temple can be built up. And the Holy Spirit can then dwell in their relationships and love for one another. Now, guys, think about how our society thinks of building up. Throw out some things of what you think building up means. What does society say building up is? Education. Good. What else? Self-esteem. There's a good one, right? Brian, you are good and nice, and gosh darn it, people like you. And all those things are true about Brian Felix, aren't they? But what is it that makes Brian truly special? It's that he's a brother in Christ who has the spirit dwelling within him. The things that the world throws out are often just tickling our ears. Building up is to come with flattery. Now, it is genuinely, actually, what this is meaning is it's genuinely encouraging one another, giving each other courage for the battle. Do you know that's what encourage means? Can you imagine taking positive, encouraging radio stations and playing them in a battlefield? All right, guys, positive, encouraging. Let's go. I'm ready to go. No, that's not encouraging. That's actually defeating, in my opinion, right? Encouragement is often, yes, positive affirmation, but on other times, it will be a word of strong caution or loving rebuke. Often those are what's needed to encourage us in the battle. All the time, it should be a word that points one another towards a passionate response to Christ's amazing love and the calling to fight against the kingdom of darkness. And remember what this is for, guys. Ultimately, building up the church is not to just build up the church. Building up the church is for the purpose of shining like a city on a hill. It's building up the people within the church so we can be scattered, not spattered, that would be bad. I'm back on warfare again. (laughs) Scattered throughout the world during our week, carrying with us the secret of salvation, drawing people to be part of the kingdom of heaven. You see, guys, we must be a church that evangelizes. Our building up of the household of faith must result in the drawing of men and women to Christ. We cannot buy into the false dilemma of being a church that focuses either inward or outward. The two go hand in hand together. Over the last six months or so, people have been saying, well, Hans, you know, you're, you're going so inward right now. Are, are we not going to be an evangelistic church? Well, no, absolutely. We're always going to be an evangelistic church. But what we needed to do is pause and make sure that the community we were drawing people to was a community that was mature. See what Paul says in Ephesians 4? 
A community that wouldn't splitter, splinter on fa- factions or, or on chaotic drama, but we would be a people that could draw people in and truly build them up. Inward and outward go hand in hand together. And so I want to ask us as a church, are we evangelizing the lost? Are we inviting people into our community to see what it is for Christians to love each other at our community groups here on Sunday? And then when we draw the lost towards God's people, are we a community in which visitors are blown away by the love that is present in our midst, by the unity that is present in our midst? Well, that's what Paul is saying here. He says that we serve to build one another up, and all of that is toward unity. Toward unity. Verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Ultimately, we will be unified when Christ returns to rule and reign in his kingdom. That will be the fulfillment of unity. But we need to be a local body that's ever striving towards that end. We are to be people that are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Biblical teaching equips the saints for the work of service to one another, to build one another up, all leading to the unity of the body of Christ, which is then visibly apparent to the people surrounding us. You guys got that? Does that make sense? You've seen what Paul is saying here. Now we might pause here for a second and acknowledge that biblical teaching does equip the saint. Can I get an amen for that? Here's the question though. Hans, how do we know what your teaching is biblical? Well, first, let me very clearly state that just because I say it or just because this church says it doesn't mean it is biblical. We do not have the corner of the market on that. In fact, I know that at times, various times in various instances, at least I, I can speak for myself, I have unknowingly said things that were not biblical. My hope is that in those cases where it was brought to my attention or our attention, we were able to be corrected and bring our eyes back to Scripture as our final authority. But let's look at what Scripture says to help us know what is biblical truth, what is of the spirit of truth. Let's turn uh, to the book of 1 John. Why don't you go there with me? 1 John. It's towards the back of your Bible. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. Go back to the left. And we're going to be in 1 John for a little bit here. I want to quickly look at what John told the church there of what the test is to know if you are operating in truth by the Holy Spirit. Now, the context of this whole book, and specifically the section we're going to read, is that there has been disorder and division within the church that, Paul, or that John is writing to. We don't know for sure all the ins and outs of the situation, but we know that John was most likely an elder at the church of Ephesus at this point. Ephesus was stacked with all these amazing people, and yet there was tons of division there. So he could have been writing back to Ephesus, or he could have been writing out of Ephesus somewhere else. But what he's doing is he's writing in part to address conflict in the church where some have departed badly, causing division as they left. I could show you multiple places where we get this idea from, but I'll give you one here in 1 John 2, 18 through 20. Okay? Look at 2, 18 through 20. Children, he says, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Now, don't think of the big scary guy on the world stage that's got a pitchfork, right, that, you know, a lot of people talk about. The Antichrist is just someone operating in a spirit that's outside of Christ. It's opposite Christ, Antichrist. So now many Antichrists have come, he says. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Speaking specifically of the people that had caused division, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 
But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. See, these people were coming in and saying in the church, oh, we have the true knowledge, we know what's going on, and if you guys don't follow us, then we're going to leave, we're going to splinter, we're going to cause problems. And so everything that John is talking about here is reassuring the church that's left behind, hey guys, you know what? You guys are okay. You're going to be all right. If you read chapter 1 even, in, in 1 John chapter 1, he's saying those that walk in the, the light, man, they have fellowship with Christ and with his people. Those that walk in darkness and yet say they have fellowship with the light, they're liars, right? Read 1 John with that mentality and that understanding of the context and you'll see it all over the place. Well, these false prophets have caused many in this church receiving John's letter to doubt that they are Christians and they feel condemned. Well, if these people left, what are we doing? Are we still Christians? And so John is trying to encourage the recipients of his letter. His point going into the section we're about to read is that Satan lies to our hearts and minds. And so we need to check to see if what we are thinking and feeling is truly from Christ. You see, sometimes Satan gives us assurance when we should actually have no assurance. And sometimes he gives us condemnation when we should actually have assurance. I want so badly, church, to equip you to be able to discern what is of Christ and what is not. So let's read and see the four filters that John gives to us to see if something is truly from the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read 12 verses there. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They, speaking of the false prophets, are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Now notice first in verse 6 that there is a spirit of truth and a spirit of error. Church, Christian, be careful when you start ascribing things to the Holy Spirit. Be careful when you use the phrase, the Spirit told me. Be careful when you use the phrase, I have a peace from the Spirit. It would be an awful thing to ascribe a feeling from the spirit of error to the spirit of truth. So how do we know? 
Can we trust the feelings that we have? First, we see in verses 2 and 3 that it must speak of Jesus. It must speak of Jesus. And not just any Jesus, because then, man, the spirit of truth could be the Mormons. It's amazing how many Mormons I talk to that use the exact same backing to back a lot of their decisions that a lot of fundamental Christians do. The wording that Mormons use is the burning in my bosom. The wording fundamental Christians use is I have peace from the Spirit. How are the two different? Well, in fact, they're not. But what we can do is we can go through the first test. The first test here is not just Jesus, the name Jesus, but that Jesus has come in the flesh. Now, how often do you use that? You know, your wife enters the room, ah, Kelly has come in the flesh, right? Well, there's a specific reason he used that here. He's saying incarnate. That if you don't believe in the triune God, that Jesus is God uh, God the Son with the Father and Holy Spirit come in the flesh, then you are not of the spirit of truth. So immediately we know anyone who does not subscribe to the triune view of God is outside the spirit of truth. It must have Jesus as Lord. In other words, when you have a person in front of you that is proclaiming that they follow Christ and they are blatantly refusing to follow a command of Christ that has been brought to their attention, one of two things is true, guys. They are either in unrepentant sin or they are not a believer at all. It amazes me how many people say, yeah, you know, so-and-so, my friend, they're, they're a Christian. Oh, really? Yeah, but, you know, they're living in sexual sin, and I haven't seen them go to church in years, but they tell me they're a Christian. They're either in blatant, unrepentant sin and need to repent, and you need to tell them that if you're their friend, or they're not a Christian at all. Secondly, the second test is that the Spirit is not to look like the world. Often we turn this into what we wear or what music we listen to. Right? If I wear my you know, denim jumper, right, I must be a Christian. Well, that's not what it's talking about. What John's context is here is that it's a relationship within the church. It's how you operate within relationships. The church is to love differently than the world. That's what verses 7 through 12 are all about. And prior to chapter 4, what that whole section is about. They're to be committed differently than the world. They're to resolve conflict differently than the world. When people act in relationship like the world does, we should know that it is not of the Holy Spirit. Guys, if it quacks like a duck and looks like a duck and smells like a duck, it's a duck. Don't try and dismiss it as a platypus, right? That's why the consumer mentality in church, guys, is not of the Spirit of Christ. If I'm going to only look out for me, there's a big problem. That's not from the Holy Spirit. Well, third, look at verse 6. Paul says there, they did not listen to us. Well, the us here is not just a church, but it is specifically the apostles. You see, John could be pretty clear that what he was saying was from the Lord. So how do we know if someone is not submitting to the authority of the apostles? Well, guys, this is a tough one because everyone claims to be doing Christian right, to be doing it as it was intended to be taught. But I think we must look at traditional faith of Christianity and study the word of God. And if it is in blatant opposition against the word, it's not of the Holy Spirit. You see, what I find causes the most chaos 
around the church is not things that are up for debate, things that are secondary issues. It's things that are blatantly obvious, things that have been called out as blatant sin that people then go against and then cause division. If that's happening, if it's against the word of God, then it is not of the Holy Spirit. And this is part of why the ministry of the word is so important. Well, fourth, the fourth test is in verses 7 through 12. It must have the body of Christ in mind. If it is something that comes from selfishness and is not selflessly devoted and committed to the good of others, it is probably not of the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of error. Again, that's why the consumer mentality in the church, guys, is of Satan. It's not of Christ. The love that is talked about in verses 7 through 12, dear church, is a selfless love that God saw fit to love you, an enemy, so much so that he gave his only beloved son selflessly. Jesus, in the garden, said, Father, take this cup from me. It's an imperative. He commanded God to take it from him. But then he followed it up with, but not my will, your will be done. What was the Lord's will? What was the Father's will? It was to crush him for you. It was to lay everything on the line so that the church would be drawn to Christ and unified in him. When we, or anyone, acts outside of this mentality and acts only in selfish regard, you know it is of the spirit of error. Let's be a church that discerns truthfully. And if we do this, we will stay strong in the midst of God's word. And this is so important because if we go back to Ephesians 4.14, go back there with me, and this is my last point this morning. If we go back to Ephesians 4.14, we see that ministers of the word are given as a gift because biblical teaching equips the saints, but as we've just seen, biblical teaching protects the saints. Third, biblical teaching protects the saints. So not only does it equip the saints, it also protects the saints. Remember that Paul was just praying for the church in Ephesians 3, that they would know God's love and then operate in love towards one another. And Paul has been operating in the truth that God's whole plan is unity. Remember back to Ephesians 1, what was the whole point of God's plan? It said in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To do what? What's that word there? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Remember chapter 2 is about God making one unified new man out of Jews and Gentiles operating in the glorious gospel of reconciliation. Remember that Paul commands the church to walk in unity of the one body and the one spirit in Ephesians 4, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Paul's a pretty strong train of thought here, doesn't he? You think unity is at the heart of this book? And so what does he say that those gifted in biblical teaching are to do? Well, they're to teach the saints so that they're equipped in service to one another, building each other and the church body up. Toward what end? Look at verse 13 again. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And so if uniting people in Christ is God's plan, what do you think Satan will try to do? What's that? Right. It amazes me how much when unity is talked about, people press against it. It's shocking to me. If unity in Christ is God's plan, what do you think Satan will do? 
he'll try to divide. He will break apart, he will destroy. And so Paul is saying, follow biblical teaching so that you may not be driven apart, tossed to and fro with every new opinion that creeps up or every moment of chaos. Look at verse 14 there. He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul tells us here that there are three areas with which we can be driven, tossed, and carried in a direction that is away from the unity of the Spirit and away from mature manhood or womanhood that is found in the knowledge of the Son of God. The first thing that we see is that biblical teaching protects us from false doctrine, from every wind of doctrine. Now, this has always been a problem and always will be a problem. You see, if Satan can't destroy God's word, then he must try to confuse it or pervert it so that people think they're following Christianity when really it's a platypus, right? Or a duck. Thank you. That's good. Look at what Paul says to the church in Galatia that was buying into the idea that you had to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. In Galatians 1, 6 through 7, he says to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We must be careful to follow the word of God and not man's opinions on the word of God. Well, how do we do this? Guys, you read your Bible and you reread it over and 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 over. And when you've read Ephesians for the 500th time, you read it over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because if you cannot see what I'm speaking on a Sunday morning, then I give you every grace to leave and run from this building. What I'm teaching has to come from the word of God. And if it's not, you should find a different church that teaches straight out of the word of God. And I will go to bed content at night knowing that the people that I've shepherded, I've at least shepherded to sit under good teaching, even if it's somewhere else. We have to be people that follow the word of God. Church, if you read Ephesians over and over again, you will see the themes that we've been talking about. You won't do what most Christians do, which is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, that tells me that I'm saved and I get to go to heaven. No, you'll read the whole thing and see that the grace of God is meant, yes, to save you, but it's also meant to defeat Satan and to build the body of Christ so that the kingdom of God reigns on this earth. Amen? Amen. You'll see that theme in here. Well, secondly, not only false doctrine, but we see that biblical teaching protects us from human cunning. This is an interesting word picture in the Greek. It's similar to a street gambler who is good at their craft, someone who is playing the shell game with you to work you out of your money. They're doing it for their own selfish gain. Now, I believe that there are some people out in the world that are just plain evil, right? I mean, there are some people that show up on the news, you're like, that is just the face of evil. But the reality of most people who draw others away from truth is more complicated than that, especially if they are believers themselves. And I think often those people that this is talking about are not consciously trying to draw people away from the truth. But the next item in Paul's list gives us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain as to what may be happening or often is happening when division in the churches occur. 
And this is, thirdly, craftiness in de- deceitful schemes. Now, I have up on this, this, the board here from Satan's schemes. We're protected from Satan's schemes. And it says in the word, deceitful schemes. But the word for schemes in Greek is only used one other place in the entire New Testament. And that is in Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. We'll be there in a few months, maybe. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the what? The schemes of the devil. It's the, the only other place that the word is used. And remember, Paul is the one that wrote Ephesians 4, two chapters before he wrote Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan is constantly at work in the midst of the body of Christ trying to cause division and harm. Look at what Paul warns Timothy of. I'm going to read you from 2 Timothy chapter 2 here. And remember that Timothy was the pastor put in charge to bringing order to the Ephesian church. Okay? In the midst of all of their chaos, this is part of what Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Guys, this is talking about believers in the church. Believers in the church. Well, Hans, I thought that being a Christian meant that I couldn't be possessed. Well, this isn't talking about possession. This is talking about being drawn by Satan to be one of his minions in the midst of the church. It's literally what this says. Satan's not going to show up with horns and a pitchfork in the middle of a fire pit in a church on Sunday and cause chaos. So how is he going to cause chaos? He'll do it through the people. Look at what Paul says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. This is 2 Corinthians 11. What's happening there is all these apostles, false apostles, were coming in and saying, guys, you need to not listen to what Paul's saying. You need to listen to us and follow us. We're the ones that are actually being Christian. And so Paul writes this. He says, And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So how do we avoid these pitfalls? How do we avoid being trapped in errant doctrine, human cunning, and craftiness and deceitful schemes? Well, biblical teaching that protects the saints. Paul's command to Timothy in that same book, 2 Timothy 2, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And what this biblical teaching will do, as it says there in Ephesians 4, is it will unite us in the faith with knowledge of the Son of God and will grow us up into maturity. Paul uses a compare and contrast here to describe what this looks like. First, he uses the picture of mature manhood as someone who is unified in the faith and walks in the reflection of selfless love like Christ. But then he compares it to a child 
who is tossed to and fro with every new opinion that comes their way. And the word child here is not just a little kid. It's a word in the Greek that refers to a newborn, one who cannot speak at all for themselves. And I don't think that this was a coincidence that when Paul comes to the point of contrast in verse 15, telling us what we should be instead, he uses speaking the truth as the means by which we grow up. Look at Ephesians 4.15, part of what we'll cover next week. Rather, rather than being the child tossed to and fro, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Church, the truth is often hard to hear, isn't it? Can I get an amen? amen. You guys are like, oh, the truth's easy. Go ahead. Keep, keep convicting us, Hans. It's good. Well, it's also often hard to speak. It's hard to speak for you. It's hard to speak for me. It's hard to listen. But as Christians, we should not shy away from it because it's uncomfortable. We should lean into it. We should desire more discussion, not less. We should desire more loving truth, not less. We should long to sit down, even in the midst of hard conflict, where we're angry with one another, and we are called and commanded to wrestle through Scripture to discern what the will of the Father is. That is why the Word says not to gather for yourselves people that will just agree with you, heaping up teachers to itch your ears, but rather there's safety in a multitude of counselors. And then when we hear those varying opinions, we must search the scripture and see which opinion matches, not with what I desire to hear, but with the most biblical data with the least difficulty. I love what Tim Keller says on this this point. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Biblical teaching is the only way that unity will be accomplished and truth will be protected. You see, it's such a simple truth, but so profound. If we all are doing our own thing, we're going to scatter like sheep running around with a wolf in the midst. But if we all look to Christ and his word, the word that convicts all of us and draws all of us to repentance, we will all agree to submit to that word. Then we will be united in a way that is otherworldly. Only the spirit of God can do that, church. But it takes our submission to that spirit, to God's word within his church, to accomplish it. Church, we must be people that take the word of God seriously. It's what equips us and what protects us from error. And what we will see next week is that the Holy Spirit uniting us is also what draws us into covenant community that reflects Christ as we look at verses 15 and 16. We need to be praying as a church that the ministry of the word stays healthy here that it is always core to what we do and who we are, and that it stays faithful regardless of who is standing here in the pulpit and regardless of what the response in the audience is. Unity cannot come from the wisdom and emotions of man, but only from obedience and submission to Christ and his word by empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That is why the most important part of who we are as a church and what we do is the ministry of the word of God. Uniting around that will cause the unity that we desire and will allow the Holy Spirit to convict us where we are in error and encourage us where we are in truth. So let's be a church that even when we find ourselves in conflict, we go back to the word, not to play spiritual ping pong, 
where we lob randomly selected verses at each other to support our point of view, but rather reasoning together in Scripture so that as best as possible, we can submit to the teaching of Christ as it was passed down, looking at the fullness of the biblical narrative and the overall truth that God has given us. You see, a truly charismatic church must see the ministry of the Word of God as central to everything else that is done. The Holy Spirit of God, church, will not work outside of the bounds of Scripture. And Scripture is lifeless without the unction of the Holy Spirit. If you doubt that, go reread what Sam read to us earlier from John 16. Jesus himself says the Holy Spirit of God will not work outside the bounds of what God has revealed, God's word. And I definitely believe and know that scripture is lifeless without the unction of the Holy Spirit. The two must work together. So as we finish up today, I have two quick items of application for you. The first one is a question. And I want you to ponder this this week and take it not only to the Spirit of God, but take it to the people who know you best and ask this question. What is the test that you use for whether or not you are following God's will? Is it your emotions and your spirit? Or is it the Spirit of God pointing you to the truth of Scripture? What is the test you use for whether or not you are following God's will? Is it your emotions and your spirit or is it the Spirit of God pointing you to the truth of Scripture? And secondly, I have an exhortation for you. I want to call each of, this, each of us this week to simply read through Ephesians over and over and over and over again. Read it as a letter to a local church rather than to just yourself And you will catch the themes that we have been discussing. Every time you read it, spend time in prayer. Holy Spirit, grant me me illumination. Help me to understand what Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus. And then, Holy Spirit, apply that to my life here in Salem in 2018. And read it over and over again. And I guarantee you guys will see it with new eyes and you will understand what Paul is trying to say. As we now step into a time of response and song and communion and giving of our offerings and prayer for one another, let me finish with the words of Paul to the church at Colossae. He said in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Mission Fellowship, let's be a truly charismatic church that has at its core the miraculous gift of the ministry of God's word. Paul said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I don't believe it was an accident that Paul also wrote to the Ephesians that we are becoming a temple that has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in our midst. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to cause us to grow into maturity, to be like the Son of God.